Here we go. July the 15th, uh, 2012, lecture discussion number 74 on the book of Romans. But uh, before I do that, I want to uh, um, take a little time here to address the Internet community. I have a couple of letters, um, one from Peter in Australia and Sharon from Texas. So let me read Sharon's. Uh, Dear Brother Chronister, You mentioned in one of your recent lectures that you had done a number of lectures on Judas. Yes, I have. Um, She asks, are they available, download CDs, MP3s, if so on? Please let me know where and how to get them. This is really kind of a funny story before I address this. I got a call from a kid going to seminary somewhere on the East Coast. Young man, I shouldn't say kid, but I think he was 40. So, yeah, 39 is the cutoff for kid. So, no, I don't know how old he was, but he sounded young to me, as everybody does now. But uh, he asked me, he said he wanted permission to use my Judas series in one of his classes. And because it wasn't published, he was required to call uh, because the assignment had been from the professor, apparently, to go out and not give the professor the same old material that is common on Judas to have something that was a little bit more unique and to research that. Uh, and uh, and all, the, all the students apparently were really flummoxed because everything they had tried to turn in, he had rejected as being um, mundane or redundant. And he said he was on uh, sermon audio looking everywhere for Judas sermons and Judas information. He had given up books and he had gone to find, try to find sermons. And he typed in Judas on Sermon Audio. Now, if you've gone to Sermon Audio and Sharon, that's where they all are. I think you probably figured that out now. Um, but if you go to Sermon Audio, there are millions of people that go to that site and thousands upon thousands of sermons. And if you type in Judas, you get me. And I have, I think I have 40 on there. Just on Judas. And he called me up and he said, I typed in Judas, up comes you, and at least 30 sermons. Not all of them are on there. And he said, I have hit the mother load. (laughs) Who in his right mind does 30 sermons on Judas? And like I said, there's more than that. So all of those... So I told him, I, I go ahead and, and present those. And he was so excited. He said, I, nobody has ever done anything like this before. So that's both a compliment and an insult. But he was anxious to put them in, and he never called me back. So if he is listening, uh, I would like to know what grade I got. Uh, that would be very important to me. Uh, 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 I need to know. But uh, Sharon, yes, I have... I have I bet you I have done over a hundred sermons on Judas. I know at least 30 or 40 are on, uh, are on the internet somewhere, and most of them are on a sermon audio. So, and she says, if so, please let me know and how to get them. Also, anything on the three cubed, the number 27 and the number 666 you mentioned having taught about. Yes, all of that is also, I'm pretty sure Dave has put that on sermon audio, and if he hasn't, um, call Dave or write to Dave, uh, Sharon. And he will get those to you, so you'll have your own copies. I am curious uh, what Bible version you are using. I get this a lot too. At one point, I thought it was I thought it as the New King James version, but then some words were different. Now that's because Sharon, I can't read them very well. Uh, 
my eyes are shot now. I have the giant print, New King James, and it doesn't work. And so I rely on my memory, which sometimes isn't very good. Uh, if you were reading verbatim, verbatim, and I couldn't find a version, version that totally matched, and that certainly doesn't surprise me. Sometimes what I will do, um, so those of you who are listening, I will, I have a parallel Bible at home, and I look at it, and I figure out which is the best word, and if one translation, for example, the New King James does not have killed with regard to the rock in Exodus, it has, uh, struck. And I change it to killed when I read it because I know that that is a significant, uh, the old King James has that correct. So sometimes I will put the right word in there if the translation has failed. So that's one of the reasons you won't find one that, that perfectly matches. I'm also curious since you are clear on, uh, Christ mast and Ishtar having pagan origins and connections. At least it sounded clear to me. Forgive me if I misheard. If you have teacher, teachings and or positions on the Sabbath. Well, I do have teachings on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a fantastic picture of Christ or type of Christ. And so I'm hoping that that, that is also on Sermon Audio. We put the older sermons on Sermon Audio and the newer ones on uh, iTunes and Podbean. And lastly, how is the website coming along? Will there be a grand opening anytime soon? When I looked today, it had posted currently undergoing scheduled maintenance. Please try back soon. How soon? She writes. <laughs> um, how soon, Ben, do you think? Soon. Ben says soon, Sharon. Um, <laughs> that's all we got. We're working on it. As you know, we don't have any paid uh, staff people um, to do that. Blessings on you and all the wonderful brothers and sisters there in our northernmost state. She also uh, told uh, Kathy that uh, she wanted to know what month would be best to visit. And currently, I think it's 49 degrees, Sharon, and it has been the worst summer of my life. I've had almost 60 of them up here. This is the worst one by far. And uh, so uh, I don't know if there's a good time to visit. It doesn't look like it. And we would, uh, we would gladly uh, trade what we have for what you have at least for three days, and then we wouldn't want it anymore. Now, this other one is from Peter. As you know, Peter uh, is in Australia, and he writes, Well, here is a short note for Pastor Steve Cronister. What did you say, to, he's asking Kathy this, what did you say to Steve in the last lecture that he couldn't repeat due to your Australian audience? Kathy sits in the front row, and uh, Kathy, uh, as she points out, heckles me. And sometimes I can't repeat what she says. I happen to say I can't repeat what she says for Australia. I could have said Finland. I just picked Australia because it was a top. Of, it's not. It's not relevant to Australia. It just is uh, uh, relevatory of Kathy's uh, behavior. So I want you all in Australia to know that this letter will balance all of the letters from the smart people on the internet, like Benjamin from Chicago, Jennifer from Arizona. I have read up about Jennifer's topic. I don't know anything about her beliefs. Steve, we internet, interweb audience all love you, our fearless leader. And they call me fearless leader, you know, because of uh, Boris and Natalia. And just to thank you, you realize how corrupting I can be. Um, but he goes on and he has the exact same question ultimately as Jennifer from Arizona has. And that will happen next week. So I just wanted to read those a little bit. I can't read all of Peter's letter today because I've already taken too much time. But there you go. Uh, 
just wanted to do that for you folks out there to let you know that we appreciate you and uh, and you're actually, like I say all the time, you outnumber us significantly and uh, we're grateful for that. Okay, here we go. Again, July 15, 2012, lecture discussion number 74 on the book of Romans. This is going to be the third consecutive installment that addresses Acts 2. If you've missed the first two of them, this is three. And it could be a little bit difficult without those first two. They're already on the Internet, and they're already drawing quite a response. But anyway, uh, um, I think i got a 100 lectures total now, I estimated, for the Roman series. Uh, and this one, of course, is the third one that addresses Acts 2. And you get to Acts 2 because of Exodus 20. You get to Exodus 20 because of Romans 5.1. Hopefully, I am able to wrap this up. And third installments are generally kind of review-ish, and then I wrap them up as best I can. But I don't know that I'll make it. I hope I can do it, at least get very, very close so that I can spend just a small amount of time next week. As everyone is no doubt aware, Acts 2 is not without advocates on many interpretive perspectives. Acts 2 is considered to be controversial. It's not. It shouldn't be controversial. It is because of, frankly, shallow thinking and laziness. Acts 2 is passionately presented by many factions, and each exposition is very different. In fact, the expositions are contradictory and diametric, and that leads confused people to ask all the time, who is right? And that, of course, seems obvious to me. I'm right. Duh. Now, I, I realize that perhaps a few might be unwilling to accept me being right. And, and as the, uh, being definitive, if you will, on Acts 2. And, and I know that's stunning, stunning as that may seem, inconceivable, and you all shout out, how can this be? But we have to be patient, indulgent, and charitable, and recognizing that accepting me as right is a process. Uh, individuals will travel at different rates of velocity. But I submit the eventuality is certain. It's really not that difficult to figure out Acts 2. It's really not that difficult to find the truth. All you have to do is read it carefully and slowly and look at what the Scriptures actually say. Look at it as a testimony, if you will. Think of yourself in a jury box or as a as a witness to something, and just look at the evidence. That's all I'm asking you to do. And if you'll do that, it is becomes it leaps off the page and smacks you upside the head. Ignore the recent, and when I say recent, within the last 75 years, the, ignore the recent contemporary church chaos that surrounds Acts 2. It's all new. All you have to do is go back to the founding apostolic fathers and find out what they think Acts 2 is about. And it is obvious what it is about. So ignore this new stuff. There's, there's a reason it's new. Because it's wrong. Set aside the noise also that comes from those who seek control and power and money. What I call the, the gatekeepers. And you understand, I hope, what a gatekeeper is. You don't get to go, the churches have gatekeepers. Uh, a joke was made a long time ago. You can't sing in the band unless you're related to me. 
that's obviously not true, but that's clearly a, 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 an old joke here. Gatekeepers don't let you do things without giving them some kind of uh, tribute. You have to you have to go through them, and churches are renowned for having them, and they need to be gone. But uh, the gatekeepers are those who declare uh, who is saved, saved based on what they do. You heard me say that last week. Pay attention to people who say you have to do something, you have to perform something in order to be saved. And if you don't perform it and you don't do it, then you're not saved based on their definition of salvation. In other words, they declare salvation is based on something that you do for them instead of something that is believed. And you have to pay to open the gate. And Jesus Christ himself, God in the flesh, the great I am, the creator of all things and the judge of all things, John declares him to be both, says, says this. He says in Revelation 2.6 and 2.15, he says, you are, we are to hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I, he says above himself, also hate. He hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And what were the Nicolaitans? They were people who told you what you had to do in order to be saved. In order to prove your salvation to them, you have to do something. You have to perform a trick like an organ grinder monkey. Otherwise, they'll declare you unsaved. The Nicolaitans were works-based, control-based, enslaving toll booth operators who enriched themselves with their rules and their traditions, with their little gimmicks and their little nonsense performances, and they placed themselves between salvation and their ensnared, declared themselves to be the arbiters, the umpires of who can be saved and by what means and by what proof. And Christ says in Revelation 2, 6 and 2, 15, he hates the deeds of these people. Those are scary, solemn words. By the way, do not anthropomorphize those words. Your hate is what? My hate is what? Our hate is what? Sinful. His hate is what? In contrast, sinless. His definition of his hate and our definition of our hate are not the same. Don't put your hate in him. It is a mistake and wrong. So, it's really just a matter of testing what's being taught about Acts 2. Evaluating the the motives of who's teaching it. First, look at what the scriptures say, and then look at the motives of the people who are telling you what it says. That'll get you through 99% of everything. So I'm going to give you the four tests. There's four tests that you should pay attention to with regard to Acts 2. Test number one. Is the teaching of Acts 2 Christ-centric? What do I mean by Christ-centric? And I'll try not to rant this week so much. But does this make me mad? Yeah. I got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people trapped in churches, and every Sunday they're told they're not saved because they don't do something that the guy standing at the altar says they have to do. And they go home thinking they're unsaved every week. And then they have to get saved, and so again, they got to be resaved. We've been through this a hundred times. And how do you get resaved? 
you pays your money. And the church gets huge. Everybody's got a nice car. Is the teaching, the four tests of Acts 2, is the teaching Christ-centric? In other words, is it about Christ? If there's something they're telling you that Acts 2 is teaching and it's about you, what's wrong? It's not Christ-centric. It's not about you. It's about Christ. Every bit of it. You're not there. I know, that's really sad because we all want it to be about us. Because we're all basically what? Fourteen. That's right. But it's not about us. Every phone call, when you see two people talking, they're not talking about you. Is it Christ-centric? Is it relevatory of the wonderful works of God? It even says it in the text. What they heard were the wonderful works of God. What are the wonderful works of God? What are they? They are the redemptive works. They are the wonderful works of who? Christ. That's what happened at Acts 2. That's what they heard. If you hear somebody that says, I am repeating exactly what happened at Acts 2, and it isn't the wonderful redemptive work of Christ, and it isn't about Christ, then what are they? They're counterfeits. And it's about them. Pretty soon it will be about your money. Nicolaitans. Is it about Christ? Is it Christ-centric? Is it about the redemptive works of Christ? Is the exposition that you're uh, listening to, is it lifting up Christ or is it lifting up a human being? Is Jesus Christ the altar or or, or is it human beings building steps to get up on the altar where they would expose their shame? Who is glorified? Christ? Who's getting the attention? Christ? Who's lifted up? Christ? Who is defined and determined to be the law of the altar? If it's Christ, then it's true. If it's not, if it's about, we're gonna, we, God just told us, uh, we're an Acts 2 church, and, uh, but through the, uh, authority that Acts 2 has given our church, God has just told us that, um, uh, somebody's going to be a millionaire today. But the only way you're gonna be a millionaire, by the way, this actually happened. You can look it up on the internet. Man named Kuntz, associated with a big, nonsense group out there making lots of money in big old buckets. God said somebody's going to be a millionaire. All you got to do is what? The condition is come up here and give a thousand dollars. And guess who gets to be the millionaire the next day? It's going to be you. It's going to be Tom Coons. And I'm naming names. He's a criminal. He's part of a criminal enterprise. Should be a thrown in prison. Instead, he's loved by hundreds of thousands of people, and they think that he's an Acts 2 something, when he really all he is is a crook. Send me letters. Come on, Tom. I don't think I'll hear from Tom or anybody else. Do I get mad? Yes. Because who's he, who's he fleecing? The weak. He's taking money from people that have, he takes it, really, I'll tell you who he takes it from because I get, to, oh, I'll tell you this story. I, why, why, did I even, why did I even write that today? I'm sitting at home because I have to, I have to work on Saturdays now and that's Boris and Natalia's fault. So I'm sitting there and I get a phone call from a guy who says he's from London. And, uh, um, 
And I said, okay, cool. What do you want? He said, well, I'm from uh, Microsoft Corporation. And I said, great. That's really great. And he said, uh, you have something wrong with your computer. And I said, oh, really? I got something wrong with my computer. Yeah. And if you will log on it right now, I will show you how to fix it from London. And I said, well, how convenient. I happen to be sitting at my desk right now, and here's my computer. Of course, my computer is a, is a hand calculator, about 20 years old. And as I do my math on it, you know, it's it costed $4, and I've had it a long time. Got Kelly Crumb's name on the back of it because I stole it from him. Hi, Kelly. But it's okay. He has mine. Anyway, we had two of them the same, and I used to do rake walls with it. I still do rake walls with it. But So I, I said, yes, how convenient. I'm sitting right here in front of my computer. Oh, good. I said, this is amazing. You can see what I'm doing on my computer while you're in London. That's really amazing. Said, yes, sir, I can. I'm not able to see it right now, though. Well, that's funny because I'm, I'm doing things on it right now. In fact, it's lit up. It's turned on. It's working great. And we went on like that for... <laughs> for a good three or four minutes before he finally figured that my definition of computer and his definition of computer were not the same. And then he wanted to know, why wouldn't I get on the real computer? Because he could tell, obviously, that I have one. And I said, well, I don't know who you are. You say you're from London. I don't know if you're from London or from Nigeria. And I suspect Nigeria. And he said, well, no, sir, I'm from London. I said, ha, here's a joke. I'm from Alaska. Oh, no, no, you can't be from Alaska. Yeah, yeah, I really am. <laughs> You're from London, I'm from Alaska. He's not called back. I don't expect him to. But why is he attacking me? Because I show up as what? Old. I can be had. And who are these people hitting? They're hitting the weak. Those weak people are coming to church and they're getting ripped off by criminals. We have a lot of criminals in the church. Don't ever be surprised at that. Does Test 2, does the supposed teaching incorporate or connect Acts 2 to Exodus 20? If somebody is saying to you that they're going to, they're going to teach you about Acts 2 and they never mention Exodus 20, and Exodus 20 isn't prominent in the teaching of Acts 2, then you're in a problem area. Does the feast day pattern, is the feast days mentioned? Because Acts 2 happens on a feast day. I got seven, I have to have my pattern. Somebody better be talking about the law of the altar, the law of God, the law of the Hebrew slave, and the feast day pattern. Otherwise, we're in trouble if I don't have the marriage ceremony, the betrothal ceremony. If I don't have those, then they're not teaching you Acts 20. What are they teaching you? They're teaching you how easy it is to steal your money. Do they explain to you that the altar is the condition, I'm sorry, is the provision to the condition that is the law of God. Do they explain to you that it is the law of God, law of altar, law of the Hebrew slave, and that Christ is the Hebrew slave, that he is the solution to the problem, he's the solution to the condition, he's the person who is the provision. If that doesn't have prominence, then who are you talking to? You're talking to somebody that's a Nicolaitan. And run. Take as many people with you as you can. Third test, what, it's the what does the scripture say test, Romans 4, 3. 
Acts 2 is absolutely clear as it can be. I have four signs. They never talk to you about the four signs, and they don't know what they're talking about. I have four signs of Exodus 20, and those four signs are repeated at Acts 2. And you must have somebody that explains why those four signs are repeated. Why did God repeat Exodus 20? That's key to Acts 2. They need to tell you about the theocratic kingdom, which is Israel, and the spiritual kingdom, the church, and the distinctions between Israel, the wife, and the church, the bride, back to the marriage and betrothal ceremony. They go. That's not happening. They're not teaching you about Exodus 20 or Acts 2. It's the beginning of the nation of Israel, the wife, and it is the beginning of the church, the bride. There's two beginnings. They happen on the same feast day. They have the same four signs, the trumpet, the smoke, the fire, and the languages. And then after the four signs, what happens? After the four signs are done, I get a multitude of people because of those four signs. And those four signs, by the way, are not not some little tiny sign. They're unbelievable. And after those four incredible signs, Galilean Jews speak. And they speak about what? They speak about Christ and the wonderful works of God, which is Christ. His redemptive works, the wonderful person of Jesus Christ, the law of the altar, the solution to free will sin. That's what they're talking about. And the Galilean Jews are speaking Galilean Hebrew. And that's obvious. Because of Peter's sermon. Peter got up and gave a sermon. And that's a recitation of Joel 2. So I better have Joel 2. So the Galilean Jews understood what they were saying. All the apostles knew what they were saying. It tells you so. Because it's the language in which they were born. That becomes important. Language in which they were born. If somebody stands up and speaks a language that he doesn't understand, and it is not the language in which he was born, he has nothing to do with Acts 2. Can't say any stronger than that, can I? And the devout pilgrimage Jews who were there, they heard the Galilean Hebrew, heard The Galilean Hebrew, let me say it slowly so I get this right. The Galilean Hebrew spoke a language that, in which he was born and the pilgrimage Jews and the Romans and the uh, Cyrenians and the Arabs that were there and the proselytes that were there and the Cretans that were there, they all heard that Galilean Hebrew in the language in which they were born. So everybody had a language in which they were born. And that's often missed, always missed. Nobody seems to get that. That's so important. The language in which you were born is so important. The people who are speaking are speaking the language in which they were born, and the people that are hearing are hearing the language in which they were born. If you do not have the language in which they are born being discussed with regard to Acts 2, then you are what? Wrong. Now I want to know why you're wrong. You're wrong on purpose. 
think you're wrong on purpose. Yes. Yeah, I, and we'll get to that. I have, I have uh, on page, let me see where I am. Page seven, Mikey. Okay. You brought, the, brought up a wonderful point last week, and uh, we'll get to it. He's worried that I won't get to it. Can you tell? We're out of time already. Sorry. No, I'm kidding. Okay. The Holy Spirit of God transformed the Galilean Hebrew as it was uttered into hundreds of languages. There was a multitude of people there, and they spoke hundreds of different languages. There's all kinds of countries. And inside every one of those countries are different groups that come of Jews. And so, just like we have a vast ethnicity in this country and many languages being spoken. Well, somebody told me a while back uh, the difference between the school district, Anchorage School District, when I was teaching and now. The number of languages being taught, or I'm, being, I'm sorry, being spoken in the Anchorage School District. How many are there? Hundreds. And we're one city. So I have, if you don't, if you don't want to be hundreds, you just want to add a language to each country, you're still going to get up with 20 languages. But I'm going to tell you it was hundreds. So the Holy Spirit of God took the Galilean Hebrew that was coming out of the Galilean Hebrews who they were hearing themselves speak in their born language just like I'm hearing myself speak in my born language right now. No difference. But And he transformed it. Just as he does at Exodus 20, by the way, he transforms that language as it is uttered into hundreds of languages. And everyone there, that huge multitude, thousands and thousands of people, heard in their own born language. That's what it says. And not one person there needed a translation. Not one. Not the person speaking and not the person hearing. Everyone understood everyone. That's the miracle. An instant supernatural reversal of the divine intervention at Genesis 11 has occurred again. Acts 2 for the second time. The first time it happens is Exodus 20. Test 4 is the Peter test. Peter stands up now. After all of that happened, Peter stands up. He's got to answer the question. And Peter is a great type of Israel. He rises up. He's the three-time denier of Christ. He's the one who, while sinking, cries out to Christ to save him, just like Israel will do, just like Israel has denied Christ. He wants Christ to save him from the waters, and Christ does, reaches his hand down and rescues him, right? Peter, who is restored to service at the end of the Gospel of John, after he proclaims the omniscience of Christ, just like Israel will do, Because if you say Christ is omniscient, and he does, he says, uh, Christ, you know all things. That's omniscience. And omniscience requires omnipotence, and omnipotence requires omnipresence, right? The three of them are all required by the other. And I will say all of them require omniperfection or goodness. So Peter rises up, and he declares the meaning of Acts 2 to be Joel 2. So any discussion of Acts 2 that does not include Joel is in error. 
Peter mentions Psalm 16 and Psalms 110. And Peter, clearly, while he is standing up, he can understand himself, can't he? Do you think he stood up and couldn't understand himself? You can't defend that from the text. Peter understood himself. And the Holy Spirit transforms Peter's Galilean Hebrew. And everyone hears Peter's answer to the two questions in their own born language. So thus, Peter answered the question of Acts 2.12, whatever could this mean? And he also answered the question of Acts 2.37, whatever shall we do? Those are called the two questions of Acts 2. Any sermon on Acts 2 that does not tell you that Peter answered those two questions in his own born language and that everyone heard it in their own born language has no understanding of what happened at Acts 2. How come I keep saying that? They're going to go to church after church after church. It's going to do it. They're going to say, we are an Acts 2 church. Give us your money. You're not saved. And finally, 3,000 are saved. They repent of their unbelief. 3,000 are saved at Acts 2. In contrast to what? That's right, Exodus 32:28, where 3,000 are slain. If I don't make that connection, kick me out. I'm after your money. And that sums up the four tests. Any explanation, any teaching of Acts 2 that omits or disregards or diminishes any of those elements, those are the specific, distinctive elements of Acts 2, cannot, cannot, will not, does not arrive at a correct interpretation of the true meaning of Acts 2. And they do it willfully. I've got to be Christ-centric. I have to have Exodus 20. <coughs> I have to have the four signs in the born language. I have to have Peter, Joel 2, uh, Joel 2, and the two questions. And let me say this. Suffice to say, there is no such thing as an Acts 2 church today. There are none. Acts 2 was a repeat of Exodus 20, and nothing like either has happened again. There's a reason. It happened at Exodus 20, it happened at Acts 2, and it's going to happen again. Three times it happens. I'll get to that in a minute. To try to attach the events of Acts 2 to any church today is indefensible. In fact, it is laughable. There is no trumpet there is no smoke, there is no fire, and there is no languages, there's no reversal of Genesis 11, there's no marriage, there's no betrothal. So why do so many insist they are the Acts 2 church? Because there's thousands and thousands of them. There's hundreds in this city probably, at least a hundred in this city. We're a small city. Why do they insist they're Acts 2? I'll give you two reasons. They're Nicolaitans or they're fools. And I will consider the combination of both. But I suspect the Nicolaitans. I think they're doing it because they're enriching themselves. All I have to do is follow them around and see what they do. I notice how much money they got. 
Good luck with that when you're standing before the judge of all things. In fact, I used to have a wonderful lady come here all the time, and she found out um, just how little economic, what's the word I want? Girth. Girthitude? That's not a word. It should be. How little economic compensation I get from doing what I do. And she was really unhappy because somebody had taught her that the pastor should be what? The wealthiest man of all. And I argue, no, he shouldn't. He should go out with a nail gun in one hand and a 32-ounce framing hammer in the other and do what he's got to do. And if he won't, he's doing this for the money. I taught a lot of high school, as you know. Coached a lot of basketball, a lot of baseball, everything. I coached everything I could. If you're teaching for the money or preaching for the money, get out of the business. You shouldn't be here. So, here we are. Joel 2, Revelation 6 and 7, and the understanding and the meaning of the four psalms. That's where we are today. Did all of that. Catch people up. I, I realize that I, I repeat. I get told that a lot. You know, you repeat stuff from one week to the other. I have to. Because the crowd is completely different one week to the other. Almost, it's almost like it changes. I have maybe two churches here and half of them come every other. You know, it's like getting gasoline under the Carter administration. you got got odd Sundays you get to come to church. So I have to do it. Okay, Joel 2, Revelation 6 and 7, understanding the meaning of the four signs. And now those of you who have been with me all these years know that I spent a year just on Genesis 15 dealing with the smoking or the smoke, uh, smoking oven or smoking furnace and the lamp or the burning torch. Those two are identified. If you will, I'm going to, the smoke is the same. I'm going to turn the lamp into fire, okay? So I have covered the smoke and the fire and the two birds. Why don't you divide the two birds? Remember all of that? i got two birds there that are undivided, and ultimately you end up in substance dualism, right? Along with the angelic host and, and uh, Leviticus 13 and 14, the uh, sign of the uh, uh, healed leper. Okay? So the smoke and the fire, in context of Genesis 15, are certain symbols and Mikey came up after last week and said it better than I normally say it, so I'll say it the way he said it as best I can. He came up and said, Genesis 15 is the sum of Acts 2 and Exodus 20. And that is true. You cannot take Genesis 15 away from Exodus 20 or Acts 2, because what's going on in Genesis 20 is the smoke and the fire are going between two parts, or they cut in half pieces. Remember all of that? Have the heifer cut in half, the, the goat cut in half, or the two birds undivided, the ram? I'm going between them with the smoke and the fire. And the smoke and the fire are at Exodus 20 and are at Acts 2. But I have these other signs as well. I have the trumpet, and then I have the thunderings, right? And then when you begin to look up the thunderings, um, 
you will find out specifically what those are. So what is the explanation of those four signs? In Genesis 15, it teaches us that the first two are a collision of the omnipotent holiness or justice of God. In other words, that part of him that has to hold into account all sin. He has to judge all sin. He's required to end sin by his Omniperfection. It would be not good. He would be ungood if he did not end sin. So he has to end sin. And if he ends sins, then everybody what? Perishes. But on the other hand, I have his mercy or his love. So this is his justice, if you will, or his judgment or his holiness. And here I have, uh, I have his mercy or his love. Here's love and mercy. So there are two sides to God, if you will, and both sides are omnipotent. They're all powerful. There is no force that can oppose either one. One is his justice that demands the end of all sin and the recompense of the reconciliation or the payment paid for all sin, which is death. The other is none shall perish. That's his love. So how do these two omnipotent forces, when they collide, how, what's the resolution? So that is what the smoke and the fire are. So those two are real easy to solve. That is the collision, if you will, in Genesis 15 of holiness and mercy or salvation. So we know the fire is salvation. Now you've solved a lot of Acts 2 right there, haven't you? Okay? And you're now able to answer the trumpet in the languages. See, we've been able to utilize Genesis 15, as I said, to assign the judgment of God to the smoke, and the salvation of God to the fire. Flame is seen as salvation and mercy at Genesis 15. And it's seen as salvation and mercy with the night plague, Exodus 10, 21 through 23. Remember, I have this darkness, but all of Israel has candlelight, candle flame, small fire, a lamp, Isaiah 62, 1. Salvation is a lamp that burns. Psalm 18:28. For God will light my lamp. The Lord will light my darkness. And that is a salvation issue. So he has a flame, if you will. The Holy of Holies. Inside the Holy of Holies, between the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, right, is what? The flame of what? The Ark of the Covenant is the salvation or the mercy of God covered with blood, right? So I have salvation is the light and justice for sin or judgment of sin is the smoke. Clear as it can be. So, again, that helps us do the other. That helps us solve the other two. Because these two are colliding. Two omnipotent forces are colliding. And it is impossible to solve it. How do I solve it? I can't solve it. But God can do it. Because God does what is impossible for man. The solution between the collision of those two, of course, is Christ on the cross. And no one understood that. So... The law of God, if you want to think of it this way, is the smoke. Go to Exodus 20. The law of God is the problem, and the law of the altar is the solution, but it also is the mercy. I have the Hebrew slave. 
So I have the law of the Hebrew slave, the law of the altar, and the law of God coming together at Exodus 20. Do you see that that is the same as Genesis 15? I hope you do. And Mike left while I was doing it. Now you know why fire landed, if you will, or sat upon the apostles in the room. Because what did it tell you about the apostles in the room? Fire landed on top of their heads. Looked like tongues, right? It's a description. The fire looked like a flapping, it looked like a little tiny flame on top of their heads. A tongue of flame, if you will. Why? Because the fire represents what? Salvation. The salvation given by the Holy Spirit is on top of them. The Holy Spirit, the flame, is inside of them now, right? Salvation is inside of them. And now you know why the room filled up with smoke. Don't you? Because again, I have smoke and fire at Acts 2. I have the collision of Genesis 15 at Acts 2. So what are they going to testify of? Because the collision is now there. Just like it was at Exodus 20. I have the law of God and the law of the altar and the law of the Hebrew slave. The Hebrew slave solves the law of God, right? I have the smoke or the judgment and the fire coming in the room of Acts 2. I have, again, the same collision at Genesis 15. And so what are they going to testify of? They're going to testify of the solution. They're going to say there's a solution to Genesis 15. And who is it? It's Christ. That's what's happening. So whenever somebody tells you they're an Acts 2 church, you say, oh good, the room's going to fill up with smoke. We're all going to have salvation on top of our heads. And people are going to get up in their own born language and tell us the solution to Genesis 15. Yay! Now, what happens, is it? Can't make any money doing that. Salvation is what? Free. Nothing's free but the grace of God. What is the grace of God? It's salvation. Didn't buy one, get one free. That ain't free. You paid for both in the price of the first one. You learned that. The only thing free is the salvation of God. Be very, very afraid of anyone that says salvation is not free. Because they're about to be destroyed. You don't want to stand next to them. The law of God and the law of altar, or of the altar of the Hebrew slave, they're both in that room, just like the smoking oven and the burning lamp. It has come again to Acts 2. And now we read Peter's sermon in which everyone heard in their own born language, including Peter, and trying to figure out next the trumpet and the, and the thunderings. Uh, by the way, just to help you with that, because I'm not going to finish it this week, obviously, the trumpets always blow when there's a gathering needed or an announcement made. When the host of the angelic realm is demonstrated, as it was 
in Exodus 2. Sorry. Exodus 2, the entire angelic host was there. And everyone saw them. The ultimate reality or the spiritual reality, same thing, was given to Israel. Okay? Where's that happening today? It will happen, won't it? When does it happen? Revelation 6, Revelation 7. If you say that Acts 2 is happening, then you're saying that we're in the middle of the tribulation. We're at the sixth seal. or Yeah, the sixth seal. Okay, I hope I got that right. I have to get there in a second. So let's go to Acts 2, and we're going to read Peter. See, everybody hears those and sees those four signs, and they're amazed. What could it mean? And then Peter. So let's read it. And Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, he's going to answer the question, what could it mean? What do those four signs mean? Okay? Not just one sign, all four of them. All four of them have to be there. Okay, and Peter's going to stand up with the, and raise his voice, and he's going to explain to these Pharisees, if you will, these devout Jews, this Galilean Hebrew who everybody thinks is an idiot, is going to stand up and explain these four signs being repeated from Exodus 20, these four signs reversing Genesis 11. So he says this, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. So who's hearing him? Everybody. How many are in Jerusalem? Two and a half million people are listening to him. Pretty big church. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day that takes you back to the crucifixion, by the way. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days. When are the last days? Tribulation says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So sometime in the tribulation, the sons and daughters of somebody are going to prophesy. So, who's prophesying? Jews. Your young men shall see visions. And 144,000 of them. Your old men shall dream dreams in the tribulation, and the Jews. And my maidservants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above. The ultimate reality will be shown. What will be shown? Angels will be shown. That's what's going to happen. Same as Exodus 20. Wonders in heaven. All kinds of amazing things. that happening today? And signs in the earth beneath. Now listen to this. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. So there you go. There's two of them right there, of the four, right? The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. You go to Revelation 6 and you find out what day that is. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is a tribulational evangelistic move. There's no doubt in the tribulation what's going on. Nobody says, well, I wonder if God exists. Because he's showing you the ultimate reality. And, and Peter is going to explain to them that Acts 2 
means is a tribulational meaning, and they all knew it. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracle. Okay? i got to kind of run it around here, and I have to find myself again. I skipped a page or something, so I'll just do what I can. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs in which God did through him in your midst, as you yourself also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pain of death, because it was impossible. i got a wonderful thing going on now. He says it's impossible for Christ to be held by death. It is one of the great impossibles. Why is it impossible, by the way? I foresaw the Lord always before my face, David says concerning him. Here's Psalm 16. And he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the way of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. So, the answer to what do these four signs mean is... Jesus Christ has come. And they're all thinking, okay, he's going to tell us Jesus Christ is the anointed one. What's the anointed one mean? It means Christ. What does Christ mean? Anointed one. Anointed one, Christ, what does that mean? They think that he's going to say to them, and they're right, that Christ is the Messiah. And they just rejected the Messiah. That's what he thinks is going to happen. Or they think is going to happen. They'd be right about that. The smoke, the lamp, the trumpet, or I'm sorry, the smoke, the fire, the trumpet, and the languages means Christ has been rejected by Israel. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. We know where David's buried. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on the throne, on his throne. So Christ would be a descendant of David. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Now, I hope you're reading along here. This Jesus God. Notice how I said that. This Jesus God. There's no comma there. It doesn't say, this Jesus, comma, God has raised up. It says, this Jesus God has raised up. You hear the difference? This Jesus God has raised up. In other words, the Jesus God raised up. What did he just say about the Messiah? Not only was Christ the Messiah, but he's Jesus God. Jesus hyphen God. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from his Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which, or he poured out this which you now see and hear. Notice that verse. For David did not ascend into the heaven, but he himself says, the Lord sits at my right hand, sit at my right, I'm sorry, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your foot, footstool. Therefore, 
let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent from your unbelief, essentially. Okay? See, there's two parts to Peter's sermon. Part one is Joel. Peter's sermon answers both questions. He answers the question, what does this all mean? And he answers the question, what shall we do now that we know? Because they learned something very important. They learned Jesus God. And it doesn't mean that God has made Jesus, which I get a lot. Jesus is God. He is unmakeable. And it is impossible for him to be in the hold of death. But the two parts of Peter's sermon is part one, or sorry, is Joel 2. And part two is Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. The first part explains the third time, and the second part explains the second time, if that makes sense. Probably doesn't, but we have next week. You see, everyone there already understood the first time. When's the first time? The first time was Exodus 20. Now all of a sudden they see Exodus 20 completely repeated in Acts 2, and they wondered what could this mean, and what does it mean? It means Joel 2. What does Joel 2 mean? Joel 2 means Revelation, Tribulation 6 and 7, the 144,000, and the moon turning into blood, and the sun being blackened. You'll find that in Revelation 6. So they understood the first part, Exodus 20. Now they're finding out about the second part, means Joel 2. Now, the second part of the sermon tells them more. They needed an explanation of what, why it was happening again. They understood, as I said, Exodus 20. They did not need, nor they did not want, a translation. Please stop with that. There's no translation in Acts 2. They don't need a translation. They need an explanation. The explanation is Joel 2 and Revelation 6. And obviously, the four signs are coming a third time. If you go to Revelation 6, I don't have time to read it, you will see it, 6, 12 through 17. The four signs are coming a third time. It's tribulational. It's the sixth seal. So the explanation of the four signs of Acts 2 is Revelation 6. Three times God speaks. By the way, thunderings means what? It means the voice or the speakings. Most of the time, it means the voice of God. Sometimes, often, it means the speakings or the languages. That's what thunderings are. That's what thunder is. I want you to note just these four things, and then I'll shut it down here. Notice the impossible. It's impossible for Christ to be held by death. Why? Notice the Messiah context. Peter is proving to them something. They say, what can this mean? He answers, Messiah. This means the Messiah. They go, okay. Then he does something else. So it's in a Messiah context. He's proving something about the Messiah. Notice the comma is missing. That it's Jesus God. 
It's not Jesus God. And notice that he poured out this, which you now see and hear. The this. What is the this that you now see and hear? And finally, the amazing conclusion that cut the the devout Jews to pieces to the heart. I think those are Pharisees. They're all there. And he says, you killed the Messiah. But of course, you can't kill the Messiah. It's impossible. I think I got a bunch of camels standing there, and I got to go through hearts of the needle, or eye of the needle. How many camels went through the eye of the needle? 3,000 devout Jewish Pharisees got saved because Peter explains to them, Jesus God. The Messiah is not just a human being. He's not just an anointed Messiah. Who is he? He's God himself. And they were cut to the heart. The Messiah is a man, but he's God as a man. He is the I Am. He is the husband of Israel. And they sought his death. God fashioned, he purposed the solution to be God and Messiah. God made this salvation, whom you crucified, both Lord and the Messiah. Does that make sense? Jesus is Yeshua, means Messiah. God made his salvation, whom you crucified. His salvation system is himself as both Lord, God, and Messiah the hypostatic union of God and man, and they were cut to the heart. And they say, men and Jews, what shall we do? The second question. And Peter says, repent of your unbelief. If you say to God to his face, I don't believe in you, you're going to be, you're going to say him. Sorry, not really. You're going to say him and you're going to stand in front of him. And if your plan is to say to him, I don't believe in you. I don't believe in Christ. If that's your plan, listen, half this country, no, millions of people in this country do not believe Jesus Christ is God or the anointed Messiah of Israel. And they're going to stand in front of him, John 5.39, and they're going to tell him to his face, I don't believe in you. How will he respond? Does he think that's okay? Does he think unbelief is okay? No. He thinks unbelief is what? The highest form of wickedness you can have. So when somebody tells me, I don't believe in Jesus Christ, I go, okay. That is the highest form of unbelief you can possess. Good luck with that at your trial. Unbelief is evil. And it takes a tremendous amount of power to save 3,000 camels and send them through an eye of a needle. And that's what he did. Let's rise and be dismissed.